0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 265th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new dinosaur from China and also some dinosaur lice that were found in amber. It's kind of (laughs) gross. And some other news from around dinosaur media. And we have an interview with Mel Murray from the Australian Museum in Sydney. And of course, we have a dinosaur of the day. And this week, it's Altarinus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Taya, Stego Sophie, Ayumi, Paula Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, Mayu, Dino Bo, Melo Stego, Wurgersaurus, and Kalen. And Wurgersaurus and Kalen both just joined.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for all of your support. And can't believe we're getting to the end of another year. And we've really appreciated all that you've done. And our community has grown. And it's been really fun chatting with people in the Discord. So if you want to join our growing community, then check out our page, patreon.com slash InoDino.
0: And with that, we're going to jump into our news. Our first story is the new dinosaur. The paper was written by Ning Li and others and published in Historical Biology. And it's a new basal neoornithischian dinosaur. So neoornithischian dinosaurs, especially the non-derived ones, are sort of goose-sized herbivores is what I'm gonna call them because they're small, but they're herbivores. And yeah, they're maybe goose-sized, maybe even a little smaller some of the time. They tend to look something like Eryctodromeus, there's a lot of other dinosaurs that people don't really hear about. Eryctodromius isn't really that basal, but like these dinosaurs are so unpopular <laughs> that nobody ever talks about them. So the best I can do is say that it's like Eryctodromius or goose-sized. That's that's what I got. There are a couple other early Neo-Ornithischian dinosaurs we've talked about, like Lasutusaurus from South Africa and Lesotho, and there's also Kalindodromius from Russia, but those aren't really depicted very often. And then Dinosaurs like Lealinosauri from Australia, which are also ornithischians, are at least 50 million years more recent, so they're not really early neo anymore. They're pretty derived. The new dinosaur is named sanshasaurus modaosiensis, and sanshasaurus comes from Sansha which means three gorges, and it was found in the area that is now underwater from the Three Gorges Dam. We're not going to be finding anything else there anytime soon. And then Modao Shiensis is after Mo Dao Shi, which is the first tributary of the Yangtze River near which the holotype was recovered, according to the article. So they're both both parts of it are named after the river and the dam. So it's kind of nice. It's not Sinensis. <laughs> it's a little more interesting of a name. I'm not sure why they named it after the dam, other than that it was found nearby. I'm kind of wondering if it's supposed to be like a tongue-in-cheek we can't find anything else here because now it's underwater, sort of thing.
1: Or they just like the name.
0: It could be, yeah. Or they're really excited about the dam being there, so they named it that way. I don't know, they didn't really specify. It was a pretty good find. They found 55 bones of Sanchasaurus. and of those, about half are vertebrae, so if you're not interested in vertebrae, it's more like a couple dozen bones. But (laughs) they do have most of both legs and arm, and parts of the feet and hips. So it's a pretty good find, but unfortunately there weren't any skull or teeth elements found, so we don't know too much about what it ate. Its femur is only 13 centimeters long, or about five inches long, so pretty tiny for a femur if you think about it. It's like shorter than your hand, probably. And they didn't do histology, so we don't know its exact age, but based on the vertebrae, which haven't fused yet, we think it was probably still growing. So even though it was tiny, it would have been a little bit less tiny when it was fully grown, probably. It's from the middle Jurassic and it's from the Shintian Go Formation of Yunyang, China. They say that it's older than Calindodromius and estimate that it's about 170 to 180 million years old. But since they said it's middle Jurassic and 180 million years old, would put it in the early Jurassic. I'm guessing they think that it's more like 170 million years old, which is pretty old. I mean, we don't talk about dinosaurs from beyond 155 million years old all that often, which is like the Morrison Formation. And they did say that they need more work done to figure out how old exactly it is. That's gonna be kind of tricky since it's underwater now. <laughs> but I suppose that formation extends beyond this area. So hopefully they can do some work in one of those spots that isn't underwater, figure out a little more specifically when it's from, maybe find some more individuals too.
1: Sometimes things turn up.
0: Could be, yeah. Or a really excited scuba diving paleontologist might go back down and mm. try to do something.
1: Extra adventures.
0: <laughs> yeah. They say that this Sanchasaurus is the, quote, earliest record of a neo dinosaur in Asia, end quote, which is a pretty good claim to fame because neo is a huge group of dinosaurs. It doesn't include Thyreophora, which are Ankylosaurs and Triceratops, or Heterodontosaurs, but it has pretty much all of those other herbivores like Triceratops, Parasaurolophus, Eryctodromius, and all those later more famous dinosaurs. And that means that potentially Sanxiasaurus could be the great-great times a few million grandparent of something like a triceratops, but it's really hard to prove that kind of thing. Based on the phylogeny, it does look like it's near the base of Neoornithischia, which kind of backs up its basal status as like this early sort of important, maybe ancestor to some later things. His closest relative is Agilosaurus, and Lasutusaurus is one node more basal, so it's not the oldest known neo-ornithischian, but it is the oldest one in Asia, so still significant. Calendodromeus is from Asia too. They named a few unique features about the dinosaur. Usually I glaze over these because they're usually very specific and not all that interesting unless you study that specific group of dinosaurs. But, but
1: they're hard to picture when you're just listening to a description. To
0: yeah, if I say like the proximal, trochanter, margin, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like I use these crazy words that don't mean anything to non paleontologists. But this one's kind of interesting because they said it has at least four sacrals, which are the vertebrae in the hips and they get kind of fused inside the hips. And it also has a strongly bowed humerus, so that's the upper arm bone, and it's strongly bowed. They didn't say that they thought it was by preservation, although a lot of times bones get bent when they're getting preserved, so I kind of wonder if that one will stick around. It's interesting though that it has like a crooked upper arm. (laughs) I don't know what that's about. And I don't think it's on display, but they said it's housed at the Chongqing Laboratory of Geoheritage Protection and Research, and its specimen number is basically three. So <laughs>
1: they don't have too many.
0: Yeah, I think it might be a brand new museum. I tried searching for it and couldn't find it anywhere. But Chongqing is a huge city. It's like 30 million people. So I don't know. It, it might be in there and established, but there's just so much other stuff there that it's hard to find without searching in Chinese. It sounds pretty cool, though. I'd like to see it.
1: There's a lot of places we still would like to see.
0: I don't know if I want to go to Chongqing, though. Apparently, it's like the hottest and most humid part of China.
1: Oh, yeah. You don't do well in heat.
0: No. Has this nickname, like the Three Furnaces, <laughs> and everybody knows about it as just be this super hot place. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> but moving farther south in Asia, we've got some new amber from Myanmar, and this one was published in Nature Communications and written by Taiping Gao and others, and again, it's from Myanmar or Burma, depending on how you want to phrase it. It's from the Cretaceous and about 100 million years old, just like all of the amber that we get from there. And like I hinted at at the beginning of the show, the exciting thing about this amber is that it has dinosaur lice in it. And they're all very small, even for lice. They're only about 200 micrometers long or 0.2 millimeters.
1: Still would have been annoying to the dinosaur.
0: Yes, especially because they were eating the feathers (laughs) of the dinosaurs. Yeah. So these 200 micrometer long ones are nymphs, which is like the juvenile louse. But I think they're called nymphs because they act like adults or something. So they ate the same thing that adults ate.
1: Or were they magical creatures in a
0: forest? I mean- some people might consider lice magical i guess but (laughs) i don't know if i would they were in a forest i mean the only way that you get them in amber is they have to be on a tree right
1: yeah but now i'm picturing the poor dinosaur as kind of scraggly looking yeah missing feathers bits of feathers
0: i went down a really big rabbit hole about lice which will be part of my fun fact but one of the things they mentioned in one of the things i was reading is that lice do affect a lot of modern birds but the only places they can really stick around are places that the birds can't preen because obviously if it's like on their wing or on their front, they can just bite them off. So they tend to be kind of like on the back or like really tight in on the dinosaur. So hopefully they can't do too much damage and it mostly just affects their insulation and it wouldn't affect like their flying or anything. Mm. So
1: Well, insulation's not great either
0: to lose. No, but I mean, hopefully in the Mesozoic, they might've been okay. Without a little bit of insulation. It would be annoying though. <laughs> so these lice are named Mesotherus angeli, and Mesotherus is the Greek for meso, for mesozoic, and Therus is basically the Latinized lice, <laughs> because the family of lice is called theratera. So they just combined like Mesozoic and lice, and that's what it is, because we have so few Mesozoic lice, that name is still available. <laughs> and then Engelai is after Dr. Michael S. Engel for, quote, his outstanding contribution to entomological research, end quote, which is studying arthropods and stuff. So good work, Dr. Michael S. Engel. <laughs> like I said before, the feathers are really damaged. They're basically, if you look at the feather and you've got the rachis down the middle and then you've got those fine little feathers, filaments coming off the sides, the fluffy soft part, those fluffy, soft parts are the part that are damaged. It doesn't look like they were chewing on the big, thick rachis going down the middle of it that probably wouldn't be as tasty. And in the images of it, you can see that there are these chunks sort of bitten out of them. It almost reminds me of a leaf where there's a insect on it and like eating holes in the leaf and it has a similar kind of appearance to it. A little bit splotchy. It's not all just like clear cutting straight through. It's just kind of like here and there. Weird. They go for the best bits. I think so, Yeah and they might kind of get pushed around or they move around for warmth or something too. The researchers said, quote, while blood feeding insects have been described from the Jurassic and Cretaceous, integument feeding insects have never been reported from the Mesozoic to our knowledge, end quote. And I understand why they say to our knowledge, because I was going down this rabbit hole of lice, and it's kind of hard to search and find all of it because a lot of it's researchers who are looking at something else and then you stumble upon a louse somewhere and it gets like added in. So it's kind of difficult to search for the entire group of different animals that might feed on dinosaurs because there's also stuff like mites and there's fleas and ticks and all sorts of different groups. So it's kind of tricky, but it's really interesting. I didn't even know before this paper came out that lice ever ate on integument. I thought that they all just sucked blood, but it turns out some of them eat hair and feathers and stuff like that. In the find, there were two pieces of amber. One of them has nine lice in it and the other just has one louse. The one with nine lice is a really cool one where you can see all of the lice kind of sitting around and then the chunks of feather that they've eaten out all over the place. They're not quite sure where these lice fit in the family tree, the lice family tree, (laughs) since there's so little known in the Mesozoic about lice. So they put them as like an inserte sedis sort of, we don't know where they'll be. Some lice expert will come along, I guess, and figure this out eventually after we find some more lice. But for now, we know that it's one more thing that was irritating dinosaurs. They had to worry about lice eating their feathers when they weren't looking or weren't preening.
1: Yep, still. Poor dinosaurs. (laughs) No easy way to pick them off.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's nice to have those combs and soaps and stuff that we have now.
1: Yep. And friends with fingers. (laughs) In other news... We've talked about it before. But on December 31st, Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History's Great Hall will be closing for its epic renovations. So on December 7th, they had a celebration to say goodbye to their fossil skeletons, and that included a ceremonial removal of the brontosaurus (laughs) skull. (laughs) So Research Casting International is going to be restoring the bigger skeletons, and then the other ones will be restored at the museum's collections facility.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'd heard when I went to Research Casting International that they might be getting that job and it's cool that they ended up securing it because they do a great work.
1: Mm -hmm. We'll definitely have to visit when it's done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We still haven't been there. Oops.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now we'll only see the renovated parts. (laughs) In the UK, Mary Anning may finally get her statue in Lyme Regis. We've talked about that one before too, but quick recap. So Evie Swire, she was nine at the time. This was three years ago. Heard about Mary Anning's story and how she and her Mary's brother discovered one of the first ichthyosaur skeletons, as long as many other finds. And then Evie found out there was no statue of Mary Anning, so her mother, Anya Pearson, started a campaign with the slogan, Mary Annie Rocks, which I'm sure many of you have seen. And they've raised thousands of pounds, and this year a movie about Mary Anning called Ammonite was filmed in Lyme Regis, and that was starring Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan, and the team donated 15,000 pounds to the town, so now... Lion Regis is deciding how to spend that money, and there's a lot of people there who think it should go to a Mary Anning statue.
0: Yeah, that'd be cool. It would be. We gotta see that movie.
1: (laughs) And that statue once it's up. Yeah. Which I guess I have no idea how much statues cost, but apparently a lot. And
0: they gotta be able to tough the constant barrage of elements they get in the UK.
1: (laughs) True. Plus people touching them.
0: Yeah. And we've seen what happens when you don't make them properly based on the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. All that water makes stuff
1: rust. I guess you need money too to maintain it.
0: Yeah, good point.
1: Thanks to Ricardo for sharing this next one with us via Twitter. So a team from UC Berkeley published research on multiplicative compositional policies, known as MCP, it's the acronym, which allows simulated characters to learn reusable skills. And they learn it based on imitating Uh, mocap clips from human actors. so
0: Motion capture? Exactly. The ping pong ball suits?
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so they learn the first skills um, based on imitation, and then they build on their reusable skills to do more complicated things. So why is this related to dinosaurs? Well, one of the examples that they created is a T-Rex that's able to kick a soccer ball And there's a video that explains it all in much more detail, which we'll share for those who are interested. But it's pretty fun to see.
0: Yeah, the soccer playing T-Rex is pretty, it's not great at it. It still has some learning to do, it looks like, but it it gets the job done.
1: Yeah, but it's kind of foundational for other things like other kind of characters, simulated characters, or maybe in real life too. There's a lot of implications. And then they were saying that it's the MCP is better than other ways of doing this, or, you know, it looks more fluid. Cool. On December 27th through the 29th, Monroeville Convention Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania will have a dinosaur adventure exhibit that have life size dinosaur and activities for kids, such as fossil crafting, obstacle courses, and then you can ride some dinosaurs. The dinosaurs on display include T Rex, Triceratops, Diplodocus, and Velociraptor. So if you're in the area, it's something you can do before new year's and last we've got an update on jurassic world sort of so colin trevorrow recently posted a video on twitter of a dinosaur robot head it can move its eyes its eyelids the jaw and the tongue it looks like an herbivore there's a beak shape but it's hard to know exactly which type of herbivore based on just this robot (laughs) (laughs) And there's not too many other details on the film release yet, but there is a fan theory that there's going to be dinosaur-human hybrids and that <sighs> maybe you heard that it was introduced in the script for Jurassic Park 4, but was never made.
0: I really hope not because Colin Trevorrow was involved with you know, the what became Jurassic Park 4 Jurassic World and opted not to make dinosaur-human hybrids. So he made the Indominus Rex thing instead. So hopefully they stick if they're gonna do hybrids, at least just leave them as dinosaurs. I don't know. The human dinosaur hybrids, like just why.
1: Right. It doesn't quite make sense to me either. If you look at the timeline, there's not much time between Fallen Kingdom and when Jurassic World Three happens. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Or what was going on in the last movie? Like all the dinosaurs escaped, and then you just randomly throw in. By the way, in an unrelated note, there were people making dinosaur human hybrids. Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> super weird.
1: We'll see, but I'm glad to see that there's robots, and then hopefully more puppets.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping it's a Therizinosaurus. We need some sort of Therizinosaurus.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to tell based on just the head, the they robot the, head.
0: Yeah, they had the one in the background in the last movie when mm. they were leaving the island. There was like an Eorlicosaurus or some kind of Therizinosaurus flailing around. That would be cool. <laughs> jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: And now for our interview with Mel.
0: We're joined today by Mel Murray. She's a science communicator and digital content producer at the Australian Museum in Sydney. She's worked on both the website, Making Digital Content, as well as the Tyrannosaur Meet the Family app. And her official title is science communicator and digital content producer. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're very welcome. I've just taken a bow for those of you that can't (laughs) see us. Well-deserved bow.
1: Yeah, Mel's already given us a great tour of the museum, which is currently under renovation, So lucky us!
0: Yeah, getting mm. a behind-the-scenes look—it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even realize that you guys have the T-Rex from T-Rex Autopsy. That was the most surprising thing to yeah, see in the did. corner.
2: We got a guy <laughs> <laughs> he gave that to us. Yeah, we got a guy. So we do, and that's been a um, it was a bit tricky to get in. It didn't quite fit through the doors. <laughs> we had to <laughs> make some adjustments to both the dinosaur and the doors, to squeeze that in. But it's a, it's a big hit for sure.
0: Yeah, that's cool. But the bigger focus of your museum is on Gondwana dinosaurs, which is great because Laramidia and Laurasia in general tends to get all the attention around yeah, the world. Yeah, they
2: do. <laughs> yeah, they do. But that's all right. We're coming up strong from the back end, which is what we often do. We've won gold medals at Olympics that way. <laughs> being last man standing.
0: Nice. What's your favorite dinosaur in the museum?
2: Oh, well... I'm quite partial to a Parasaurolophus mm-hmm. just because he's, he's got a great head on him. But, um, you know, we've got to love our Matabarasaurus, some of our best-known Australian dinosaurs, but some of our newer species that are being discovered and described at the moment are pretty cool, like Australovenator, <laughs> or as I like to pronounce it, Australovenator.
0: That's how we say it too. Yeah, yeah. we've
2: yeah. been corrected here. <laughs> <though. Yeah. laughs> I won't correct you. I think it's more fun that way and people <laughs> remember it better. Um, Stegosaurus has always been a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, fun one as well but i do most of my work on real fossils Mm -hmm. on centrosaurus oh cool we did a pretty cool swapsies a few years back (laughs) with some opalized fossils and armored plated fish with the uh, terrell museum in alberta so Mm -hmm. we have some large jackets of centrosaurus material that that's what i basically work on in front of the public to teach them how what happens with dinosaur fossil preparation work and also training up our volunteers and other staff members to do that in the public view so they can see how long these kind of things really take.
0: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It is. Yeah, I suppose if you have opalized dinosaur fossils to trade, you can probably pick about whatever you want. Yeah,
2: you're right. (laughs) I think what we handed over probably could have fit in a couple of matchboxes, but um, we got a bigger deal out of that and we're still using those. Uh, 14 years later, 15, 16 years later, Mm -hmm. and still doing that, uh, including work experience kids coming and helping me, amazing kids that um, are on the spectrum that might otherwise not be able to find a place to do work experience that has their interest in mind. And I had this kid that came last year and he was – Like a machine, he Mm -hmm. put together six ribs in two days that had been sitting on a a tray for about 15 years. Wow. And he was just like, (laughs) you know, it was done. And he and his family were so thrilled that we'd let him do that. But it was actually the converse was true that he had done an amazing job of helping us do something that otherwise would probably still just be sitting there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's great that we can, you know, have that kind of experience and involvement with, with the communities. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Well, you've always had this kind of community support and feel to the,
1: your, Australia's first dinosaur museum.
2: mm mm-hmm. oldest museum. Oldest yeah. museum,
1: and also considered
2: to be the dinosaur museum. <laughs> that's what we call it. Well, in Sydney we have quite a few museums, so this is generally known as the Dinosaur Museum in Sydney. Uh, that's okay. We make them walk past geology and, you know, minerals <laughs> and other parts of our collection on the way to the dinosaurs. <laughs> I just snorted That's to that. <laughs>
0: That's totally fine. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and you had the whole community help to f- raise funds for the Dilophosaurus. Yeah, for the Dilophosaurus many years ago, but also more recently for Eric the opalized plesiosaur. So that mm-hmm. was another one that the public helped raise the funds to keep that that specimen here in Australia. And he actually went touring for a while. Eric, we like mm-hmm. to give our dinosaurs nicknames. Yeah, I mean you've got Sue <laughs> over there, but you know we've got we've got a whole heap of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Eric was named after a. Um, a uh, Monty Python skit where all the animals were named Eric. So
0: Is that by the Is that from Eric the Red?
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> spot. Okay. <Yeah. laughs> is that whole thing a Monty Python reference? Yes.
2: I don't remember that. You'll have to watch it again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I think one of my favorite parts of seeing this
2: museum is how interactive it is. Yeah, yeah. we try really hard to have a really really accessible museum. So it's not just a matter of when I say accessible, it doesn't just mean that someone can fit a wheelchair through a certain area. It means that if you're vision impaired or if um, you're just, for want of a better word, a a normal growing, developing human, Mm -hmm. that the more of your senses you can use to experience something, the more concrete that experience is. So we try to do that as much as we can usually with the real deal or if not if they're too fragile then with um really good casts or copies of those
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think this is the only like really big like metropolitan center museum we've seen that has a lot of touch bones oh yeah you'll see them in like remote areas where they know they're not getting a lot of foot traffic but usually yeah. in big museums you don't see that
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> really oh we have cool. our visitations pretty intense here during school <laughs> holidays and if we have Uh, you know temporary exhibitions on like we we have recently with the tyrannosaurs meet the family which is now touring worldwide i think in scotland i'd love to know what the glaswegians are thinking of our (laughs) our exhibition (laughs) it's sort of it's nice that dinosaurs are one of those topics that translates across any language Mm -hmm. you know Uh, i know latin's pretty well spoken in parts of Europe, but <laughs> 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 but to, to know that it doesn't matter where you go, you're going to find a dinosaur or something related to it in any you know big centres that you like. And we're still learning more and more about all of our dinosaur fauna that we have here. For many years, we were considered a bit of a wasteland. But now that we understand more about the geology of where these dinosaur fossils are being found, we know how to get them out. Yeah. instead of waiting for them to percolate through the black <laughs> soils one at a time we know if we get down to that layer where they are we can get them out whole and that's what's been starting to happen now
0: awesome mm-hmm. yeah and you also have some unique fossils in the museum like you have quantosaurus
2: we have quantosaurus which is a victorian ornithopod it's not very well understood because of the fragmentary nature of the remains that have been found but named after our famous airline, the Qantas. So the Qantasaurus It's a cute little ornithopod with a short jaw and not as many teeth as, as other species that are similar. So, but we don't know if it's a juvenile. We don't know that much about it. So we just got to keep looking. Yeah. We just yeah. got to keep looking. <laughs> Need more fossils. Yeah. <laughs> Always.
0: Especially in Australia. Need more fossils. Oh, yeah. Well,
2: yeah. We do have an aging population like every – no, I'm joking. <laughs> so if we call our, our parents and grandparents, we call them fossils or the foss. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's also the uh, exhibits that show how dinosaurs have evolved into birds and
2: the subtle clues to make you look and think about them. Yeah, definitely really important. I mean, I love to tell people that, you know, well, I've just asked them, do, do, do you have a – any pets at home? Mm. And I say, yeah. And I say, what have you got? Oh, well, we've got a budgie, which is a budgery gas, so or a little pet bird in their cage, or they might have chickens, or they've got, you know, a lorikeet. And I say, well, you've got a pet dinosaur. Do your parents <laughs> know that you have a pet dinosaur in your yard, in your house? Are you serious? Are you crazy? <laughs> uh, and they're like, what? And so then you come and you show them, they go, I've got a pet dinosaur. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so that's exciting for them to think as well and to to piece all those things together, all of our visitors, young or old, to just come and be amazed by the past and hope that we can in the future gather some of these interested parties into our team of of scientists, of um, science communicators. So me as as an earth scientist, I could never choose one field so I had to just do all of it. I couldn't mm. just be a petrologist. I couldn't just be a mineralogist. I had to do all of it. So at a museum is the perfect location for that because we have such large and vast collections that to be able to work with those, is, it's a real privilege. But it means I didn't have to choose one. Yeah. yeah you know, I didn't awesome. have to choose my favourite kid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Got to have lots and lots of them. Do you know if anything is changing in your dinosaur area?
2: Uh, We'll be updating a few things hopefully um, because this gallery is now about 12 years old, I'd say. Twelve years ago we reopened this and it was brand spanking, as we call (laughs) it, Um, and that was really nice. But there's some things that we will update. We'll have some more information um, that's coming in. We've got some repairs of some specimens. We've got different ways of displaying stuff, but the Mm. content won't reduce. Mm. If anything, it will increase.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah, you've definitely, was the mutaburasaurus that you have that somebody wears and walks around in? Winnie, yeah. <laughs> Has that been here for 12 years or is oh, that a newer addition? Yeah,
2: no, she's she's about that old as well actually. Oh wow,
0: that's one of the earliest ones we've heard of. Yeah, I used to be her
2: mum. <laughs> um, so she has a Facebook page. You can look her up and be her friend on Facebook, W-I-N-N-Y, last name Saw, because there you are. <laughs> um, she's a Mataburrasaurus from a town called Muttaburra. So it's the most complete dinosaur species that we know of in Australia. We've got virtually every single part of these dinosaurs. There's several species, several individuals that we have from Queensland as well as New South Wales, hmm. and we believe... There's a brand-new one that will be coming out soon, uh, an opalized specimen Ooh. that's been found in Lightning Reach, which is just a, not same, same, but different. Mm. So it's, it's it's one of the ornithopods or the duck-billed dinosaurs, whatever you call them here, but it's a brand-new species. So that's all being worked on at the moment. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that would be awesome.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's pretty fun to have those. But Winnie's a magnificent way of teaching paleontology through puppetry. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, to get inside her when we first had her, she was she weighed about thirty kilos, thirty two kilos. She's oh. been through a few, um, Dino Day spas, shall we say, <laughs> and had some pedicures done and a bit of lipo. And uh, <laughs> she's based on the realistic size of a, of a three to four year old muttaburrasaurus. So she makes noises and her eyes move, and she's very lifelike. And it's quite hilarious to see grown adults put their children between them and the dinosaur. <laughs> I've taken her to shopping centres. I've taken her to country towns. We've nearly caught, oh, uh, no, I better not say that. The insurance will go up. But, you know, <laughs> she's very well loved and she, she's a huge hit when, whenever she comes out, but she needs a, a little bit of a rest at the moment. So it's nice that she's having a long extended dino day spa, but you should be able to get some, some shots of her. For your site before you leave here today, cool, we'll take yeah. you around. Great. If you want to, you can get inside. Uh.
0: Oh <laughs> I'd
2: like that. <laughs> we actually
0: at our wedding we had a T-Rex that's kind of a similar style. Yeah, just because we got married at a zoo and they happened to have one. They asked like, "Oh, do you want to?" You know, have this T Rex there. We're like, yeah. Why do you have to ask? (laughs) And they said nobody's ever been interested in it before. We're like, what? But (laughs) I got a chance to get inside it, but Sabrina did not.
2: Oh, it
1: could be your turn then. He has been reminding me about it ever since. So,
2: (laughs) well, you can get on inside. I don't know how funky she is. We'll check that out. (laughs) See who was was used last. But we have had wedding receptions here in this gallery. Awesome. Um, And actually, a friend of my sister's got married here and, and his wife, his new wife was very pedantic and very particular, you know, with the run sheet and what was going to happen and she didn't know that I knew that it was here. And so myself and and a colleague, friend, we stuck up the back and we got in Winnie and we set her up and we just crashed the wedding. And it was just like what and she ended up being on the back of all of their thank you notes. You know, it was a photo of the bride and groom with the dinosaur in between them. That's <laughs> just come great. up and goose the goose the groom. So <laughs> How often can you say a dinosaur crashed my party my <laughs> wedding? So I'm glad that you got to have that as well. It's
0: fantastic. Yeah, it was great. All of the kids were terrified of oh, it yeah. too.
2: But the adults loved it.
0: Yeah. There was a, and there was a, young enough kids were just fascinated by it. Yep. But if they were old enough to know better, then they were scared. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it's funny. You know What it is, when they get scared, it means that they've still got their imagination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can have really young kids that will look at it and go well, that's not real. I can see that person's legs. Mm -hmm. Whereas you can have much older kids that will look at it and they can just see that thing moving. They know (laughs) that what that is and they just need to get out. It's that flight or fight response. Mm -hmm. So for my observations, my understanding is from my previous life when I used to be a a teacher, is that those kids have still got their imagination and you've got to love that. And Mm -hmm. parents get really cross and they go, What are you scared of it for? You love dinosaurs. It's like, yeah, but this one's moving. It's not on the book. It's not on a page in a book. This one's moving and it's coming at me. And that means their imagination is still there and that's so important, so important. That's how we're going to have these technologies of the future, of Mm. people being able to make these things come to life. I'm not saying get some DNA and bring those babies (laughs) back because I don't know how you're going to keep those things contained, you know. (laughs) Let's just be happy with the huge variety of bird species that we have here today and every time you're out and about, have a look at a bird's feet,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: its legs, and have a look at its beak. Beak and feet and you'll see a dinosaur. If you try hard enough, you'll see a dinosaur in every species. Oh, yeah, even the way they walk sometimes. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what we do with our puppet, actually, is we make our puppeteers watch animal documentaries to see how animals move. It's, you know, it's the head goes first and then the body follows. It's not just charge straight ahead. So animal behavior really hasn't changed. If you look at birds and back compare them back to dinosaurs, that behaviors haven't changed at all. The herbivores and how they communicate, the carnivores who – not necessarily have wonderful eyesight, but may have great hearing in order to be able to hear the different alert sounds that the herbivores are making. We understand this more now. So those kids that have got imagination, what are they going to come up with in the future? What are they going to help us solve? So I think imaginations is a super important tool to have in your, in your dinosaur kit. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, and Australia is a great place for that comparison too, because you've got all the ratites the giant ostriches, and, yes, we or do. the emus and the cassowaries. Oh, even our
2: bin chicken, the old ibis, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, yeah. she's they're looking great. You see them in the park and you just look at them, and their legs are so dinosaur, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, we scaly. love watching them. Yeah,
0: all the Especially Australians are, the are like, Yeah, why Why are you so interested in these <laughs> ibis? The bin chickens, the bin chickens,
2: yeah. <laughs> We've also got giggle chickens, you know. What are those? That's the kookaburra. Uh.
0: Oh,
2: it's <laughs> the giggle chicken. <laughs> so many great names yeah. <laughs> but I think it's because of the heat I don't know sometimes <laughs> our brains do strange things I'm trying not to look at my colleague over there to see if it's just me as well <laughs> she's shaking her head at me yeah she is
1: <laughs> I'd say another important kind of tool in the kit or whatever uh, for any kind of science too is also access to museum collections and that's something you're working on with your masters
2: definitely yeah It's. Um, I mean I'm very privileged to have worked in collections here as well doing behind-the-scenes tours through all of the collections, not just the geoscience ones, but working in the geoscience collections for a couple of years really opened my eyes and made me a bit sad that we have such small floor space available that there's things in our collections that will may never get a Guernsey. They'll never get up on stage, you know, because they're not pretty enough or they're not... That's just a boring black rock or, you know. So as part of my master's from the um, IK to cyberspace is trying to increase access to museum collections via digital modes and social media platforms. So I'm doing lots of exploration into photogammetry and 3D modelling and um, fly-throughs with 3D fly-throughs just, you know, with goggles and stuff. Oh, yeah. So trying to there's, – there's no money for this, of course. <laughs> <laughs> there's no money for this. But, you know, if I can come up with enough – my papers in enough accepted international journals that people will, will see that there's actually an industry here. there's a whole way that we could start with type specimens, you know we could get type specimens cast and or photogametry do you imagine being able to print out one of those yeah. from your school printer and have a look at that you know it's it can open up a whole new world for people who can't actually not just get to the museum and see what's on display but get to go behind the scenes because we have so much in our collections, 21 million objects and counting, <laughs> wow. Wow. that's in all of our collections, yeah. mm-hmm. to try and access those, whether it's a, you know, am I pretty enough to go on display if I'm a mineral or that that boring black rock is beautiful on the inside <laughs> or that geological specimens need just as much care and the right conditions as a famous piece of art or a sculpture or some fabrics, they need care as well and I think they get overlooked a little bit. Ah, it's just a rock. Mm -hmm. It'll be all right. So trying to increase access to those will help us conserve those long term and hopefully get more people excited about them.
0: Yeah, we agree a hundred percent. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and it's cool to hear that you're talking about. Also, we usually hear about digitizing in respect to like sharing with other scientists. Mm-hmm. But it's cool that you're also talking about sharing it with the public. Yeah, That's something definitely. you don't hear about very often.
2: The public needs to see these things. They they own them. They're not ours. They're not any of the museum staff members. They belong to the people of the, of the country. We're the, officially the state museum, so each state has their own natural history museum. Mm-hmm. But us being the oldest museum in Australia, we've got an even more, a more important reason to make sure that the people who, who we look after these for, the future generations know, and the current generations know, that these are yours. Mm-hmm. These are here for you. They're not just for scientists. These are here for you, and because you, you don't know, one day that's going you're going to be that scientist that gets to work on this collection. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, going to a famous building and thinking, "Oh, this is fancy. I'm going to the Sydney Opera House." Mm-hmm. No, that's my Sydney Opera House. My taxes paid for that. My <laughs> mum and dad's taxes paid. I'll rock down there anytime I like. And museums should be the same. We should have a lot of ownership for them. People should understand that they're theirs. And so they're to be enjoyed. So if we can get access out to school groups or just to general public on websites, then that's got to be a bonus, I think, for everyone mm-hmm. concerned, both short and long term. Well said. Hear, <laughs> <laughs> hear. Here, here. <Yeah>. money. <laughs> we don't have money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that too. <laughs> Do you have anything that you're especially excited about digitizing? Is there like any one collection?
2: I think of some of the fossils will be really good. Some of our invertebrate fossils, mm-hmm. I think, will be really great. I've been looking at some different sites and uh, who have obviously been given the money, and the, <laughs> the 3D scans and the tomography or and photogrammetry that you can actually click on these specimens online. And you can turn them around and you can Mm -hmm. look under and over and you can actually break it in half yourself with a hammer and (laughs) tear it apart so you can see if, you know, if that goes all the way through, if it's just on the top or just on the bottom. So plants, I think, and some invertebrates um, and trace fossils would be really cool things to get done. I've worked with really big dinosaur skulls that have been scanned and then use the software to actually be able to measure the volume of that skull, Hmm. and then with, like, math, actually, you know, and even pi, it was an equation we had to use with pi, be able to work out um, how heavy that skull was. So there's there's things that you can do digitally that you might not be able to do in person because you don't have access to those. So Mm -hmm. I think increasing access to those sorts of things is important for that reason. But I find it tricky with paleontology because, and I understand, that localities need to be kept secret. Mm. So paleontology is one of the last sort of uh, collections that paleontologists seem to want to be digitised. They don't want mm. too much information out there. And I understand that because you don't want places to go and be pillaged. Great. We need to, be, to use them for scientific research if we can. And each state has their own fossil laws here. So you can collect fossils from private land if you have the permission of the owner and whatever you find you own. Like we're not going to come and take it from you. Mm. If, however, it's a very important scientific specimen, we're really happy for you to donate it to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really happy. You can come visit it any time you like, <laughs> and we do that for visitors. We'll have generational visitors that will come and say, "Oh, my great granddad donated this thing here," and they'll have several generations of the family that will actually come in and look at that specimen and see the little piece of paper that's got their great granddad's name on it and the date it was collected, and it's their history as well. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Gives you tingles, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: It's like having the world's best safe deposit box.
2: It is. It is. (laughs) It it exactly is. It really is. I'd love to have some beautiful minerals and, and some of our gems digitized as well, but then you get into, we don't want everyone to know what we've got. (laughs) You know, they've got to be safe, so we have to be careful of things that are at high risk. Hmm. So those sorts of things, you can see reasons why they would be off a list, Mm -hmm. but I think type collections are a definite one. Mm -hmm. Um, Tektites, you know, people, Tektite, what's that? Uh, Tektites are awesome. They tell us a story as well, you know. Earth rocks that have been for a space holiday and then come back (laughs) down again. So they're a cool thing. Mm -hmm. Meteorites that, you know, they're pretty heavy for a start, but being able to... Uh, digitise those and have those to be able to be turned around and looked at and studied online would be great as well. So Mm. we'll be opened up again uh, here next year in end of 2020. We'll be open up again for the public to come in and it's going to be absolutely amazing. (laughs) So that will be really cool. But obviously you can tell I'm passionate. I love the museum. I've been here 17 years and I've been coming since I was a tiny little three-year-old myself. So (laughs) I think it's a really special place that I wish we had more of a museum culture in this country. In Europe and in the States, there's quite a big culture of going to museums. So, again, I guess I just would say that if there's anyone out there listening that's got some cash, give it to a museum, you know. Mm-hmm. Art galleries get enough. Give it to a museum. <laughs> give it to a museum.
0: <laughs> a natural history museum. <laughs> a natural history
2: museum, yeah. It's really important for us to understand the past so that we can learn lessons for the future. Yeah. I guess awesome. that would be. So
1: for our listeners then, if they wanted to find out more about you and your work and also the museum Where's the best place for them
2: to go? To the Australian Museum website. Ooh. That's just theaustralianmuseum.net.au, and you can just put Mel Murray or Melissa Murray in there, or ask an expert. I'll be the one at the other end of the line <laughs> answering that question for you.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for the uh, staff members, um, publicity here, for, for hooking us all up. But it's really great, and I'm pleased that you've come and, and encourage people to keep asking questions. I guess is the main thing.
0: Awesome.
2: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks again, Mel and everybody at the Australian Museum for letting us into the museum when it was closed mm-hmm. <laughs> for renovations. We really appreciate that.
1: Oh uh, Yeah, that was fun to see. I've never been in a museum in mid-renovation before.
0: It was. And we were so surprised to see that T-Rex autopsy thing filling up the whole backspace. That was one of the biggest surprises of the trip for sure.
1: Hmm. Well, we probably should have known about that one,
0: but anyway. <laughs> we should have.
1: The way car buying should be. And now on our dinosaur of the day, Altarhinus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was an Iguanodontian ornithopod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia in the Kukatek Formation. And it's estimated to be 21 feet, 6.5 meters long, and weigh 1.1 tons. It was an herbivore, and it had a wide mouth and a tall arch on the top of its snout as well as a beak that could crop its food, and it had teeth to chew the food as well. Altaurhinus had a wide snout, and that may have helped with grazing food on the ground. It had this gap, too, between the beak and the back teeth. This is called diastema, so that it could crop the plants and chew at the same time. The nasal arch may have helped the dinosaur to cool down or to preserve moisture or to help with its sense of smell, or it could have been used for display or also helping with communication. Altarinus forelimbs were about half the length of its hind limbs, and the first digit in the hands were spikes, kind of like Iguanodon's thumb spikes. These may have been used for defense or to break open seeds or fruit. The fifth digit on the hand was opposable-ish and could have helped with grabbing food a little bit. Altarhinus had thick wrist bones, and the three middle digits of the hand were wide. They could extend out, and then they ended in hoof-like bones, and that shows they could support weight. So it was bipedal and quadrupedal. It probably walked and ran on two legs, and then was probably on all fours when eating food from the ground.
0: So like a kangaroo.
1: Yeah, with thumb spikes. The type species is Altarhinus curzonovi, and the genus name means high snout. The species name is in honor of paleontologist Sergei Kurzanov, who found the original specimens. They were found in 1981 during expeditions by Soviet and Mongolian scientists. Several specimens were found, different sizes and ages. There were at least five specimens and two were juveniles. Originally, it was classified as Iguanodon orientalis. And that was described in 1952. But Iguanodon orientalis was found to be too fragmentary and not have enough features and also be too similar to Iguanodon burnus retensis. So there was some issues with that. Also, the type specimen of Iguanodon orientalis was found to be different from the Alterhinus specimens that were found in 1981. So they could not be the same dinosaur. And David Norman named Alterhinus curzonovi in 1998. Altarhinus may have lived among Psittacosaurus and Chamosaurus, which is an ankylosaurid.
0: And our fun fact of the day is that there are about 5,000 species in Theraptera, which is the order of lice, and they evolved, like I said, at least in the Mesozoic because we've seen them in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. And lice today affect almost every mammal and bird. The most notable exception is bats, although bats do carry mites and fleas, which kind of occupy a similar niche of eating either filaments or sucking on blood. And lice, the reason that there are so many different species and that they're affecting everything is that they have claws on the ends of their legs that are specialized for specific filament diameters and types. So in order to grab onto a larger diameter hair, there has to be a whole new species of lice. Like I said in the news, some lice chew on feathers or hair or skin debris, while as others have like a sucking mouth for blood. Head lice on humans are, are of the sucking blood type, and they're caused by pediculus humanus capitis, and they don't affect any other animals. And shaving kills lice, which means that theoretically, if everybody shaved their head, and all our body hair <laughs> one day, then we would eradicate these lice. However, there is a subspecies called Pediculus humanus humanus, which is known as the body louse, and it lives on clothes and body hair. So I'm guessing that with like 7 billion people, it could potentially survive. You know, the body louse could survive, and then maybe go back to being a hair louse eventually, since they're very similar, So they're just subspecies, they're even the same species, and they can interbreed in laboratory conditions. So my whole pipe dream about everybody having a shave your head day, let's eradicate lice, wouldn't probably work a weird dream. (laughs) I I do have weird dreams. But it's also kind of pointless because it turns out head lice don't carry any diseases whatsoever. In fact, some people don't even consider it to really be a problem. They're just like, "Eh, it's just a cosmetic thing. You can deal with lice. It doesn't matter. But body lice, on the other hand, can carry disease. Fortunately, As long as you change into clean clothes about once a week and you don't contact a lot of other people that have body lice, you shouldn't catch body lice. So the most common places these show up are like refugee camps or in like wartime when people are in trenches, because one of the things that they spread is, I think it's called trench fever and stuff like that. So yeah, it's important to wear clean clothes periodically. Warm water and hot air kills lice. So just putting stuff in the dryer works too. It's a little... PSA tidbit of this fun fact. (laughs) But dinosaurs had to deal with these too, it turns out. And not only did they suck on their blood, probably, but they also ate their feathers. Pretty annoying.
1: Yep. And on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And you can join our growing community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening. Until next time.